Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week on Tia Time. We'll get to the show in just a moment. First, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who have posted a rating on Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast is an app that can be downloaded to your phone or computer. The algorithm it uses allows more artists and art enthusiasts like yourselves to hear about the show. So if you haven't posted a rating yet, do it now. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, the weekly podcast where we discuss the methods, challenges, and real-life experiences of living our creative dreams. What kind of creative warrior are you? Musician? Filmmaker? Painter? Choreographer? Poet? Sculptor? Fashionista? Let's talk about it right now. I'm your host, Tia Imani Hanna. Welcome to Tia Time with Artists, and today's guest is band leader, violinist, coach and Kresge Art Fellow, Michelle May. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. So glad to be here, Tia. I'm so glad that you're here. I enjoy your work so much, and I'm inspired by what you've done with uh, your group, Music Noir. And Thank you. I'm, I'm excited that we've had uh, many chances to play together because of that group. Yes. So just what started you, first of all, playing your violin? What was it that brought you to that instrument? So interesting, and my mother is a concert pianist, and, and my father, he was a percussionist, and he sang, and you know, among other things. And so I started in very young playing piano, and I was like probably five, five years old, five, six years old. And then music was very prevalent in the schools back in the day. And I don't mind telling my age. I'm, I'll be 58 in November. So this is the late 60s, early 70s. And when I'm in elementary school, so one day uh, a woman came to our uh, elementary school classroom. I think it was fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. And she had, she brought with her like a violin and a cello and just to entice the kids. And oh, she had just gotten hired. She was going to be teaching. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And in the back of my mind, I was like, I already know music because of my mom. Having, I knew how to read music from playing with her and studying with her. So I went home and I t- asked my grandmother at the time, I actually, I was living in my, my family home right now. And I said to my grandmother, I said, oh, I would love to play. I don't even know how I said it, but I would say, you know, the teacher's coming and I would like to play violin. And I remember she got teary eyed and she was, she was like, oh, absolutely. She was so excited because back then there was the Ed Sullivan show it was, and she had said that she saw someone years later, I found out that what she saw was someone playing meditation from Thais. And she thought that was just the most beautiful. It just, it brought her to tears. I don't know who it was. She saw playing it could have been like it's not Perlman or something like that. He was a regular guest on those kinds of shows. Who knows? But anyway, so she went out and she bought me a brand new violin, which was funny because like on the inside, they don't make them like this anymore. But it had this bright yellow shag, <laughs> interior and I do mean shag okay so yay 70s right the 70s so it was crazy but it was real bright and so when I when we came to the first class with the teacher everybody else had to use like the school instruments that were scratched up or whatever she brought or whatever and I opened up my instrument and was like ta-da you know <laughs> almost literally because it was like this bright yellow interior 
And the and student instruments are uh, made, student violins anyway, or the string instruments are made a little sturdier. And one of the things that they do is they put a lot more varnish on them. So it was like really shiny. So I was getting a lot of hater looks, you know, whatever. Like, oh, you got a new instrument. So anyway, but I studied, I studied for a year in school and the teacher her, she was really just trying to get us to play. And so she wasn't real particular with the technique. And so I wasn't really holding the, my setup wasn't really right. I wasn't holding the instrument and all of that. So what happened? So actually I'm a violinist and a flutist. And so my story of how I got to the flute really quickly was in a nutshell, Michael Jackson. So, so I was totally, this is early seventies, totally and completely in love with the Jackson five as many young, you know, black girls were. And I had Michael Jackson plastered all over my wall and everything. And so one day, because I live in historic district in Detroit, I actually live in the same historic district that Barry Gordy lives in, who, of course, is the was founder and CEO of Motown Records. And so my father said to me one day, because literally Barry Gordy's house is one, two, three blocks down from me the big mansion or whatever. And he said that to me. He said, Barry Gordy lives down the street. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> oh immediately I'm just like, oh my God, that means that means. Now this is my 10 year old brain think this. Oh my God, that means that like Michael Jackson's going to come and visit him. And then I can go down there and marry him or <laughs> whatever. I don't know. That's, that's was my thinking, seriously. Yeah. So anyways, here I am scheming, trying to marry Michael Jackson. Actually one of my, so at the time, one of the, people that my mother was actually mentoring was a writer. Her name was Penny, and I can't think of her last name right now. First name was Penny, but she was a writer and arranger. She played guitar, piano, flute, and she had a great voice. And she basically kind of like freelanced at different places. But Motown, of course, was still huge and still in Detroit. This was before they moved to LA. And so she was a writer and arranger. They had teams of people that were working with for them and a lot of unsung people at Motown. And she was one of those people. So I knew, and I tell you, Tia, to this day, I don't know why I picked up on flute, but at that time, the Jackson 5 only had three albums out. And the third album, I believe, actually they had an album called Third Album, but the second, one of them was uh, called Maybe Tomorrow. It was That was a, the name of it. And on that was the iconic song, Never Can Say Goodbye. And if you listen to that tune, there's a beautiful flute obligato that goes throughout it. To this day, I don't know who was playing it. Probably one of those unsung funk brothers or whatever. But and I guess I've always been a smart, precocious kid. So somehow I made this connection that if Penny could teach me flute, and since flute was on this record, because I had started violin and I knew I wasn't good enough to join a band or whatever in violin, but maybe flute, maybe flute would get me to marry Michael Jackson. So I could learn the flute. <laughs> I swear to you, honest to God, it's a, it's a crazy true story. And so that's how I ended up playing flute. So moving through, I, of course, I never played for Michael Jackson. I got to play for some famous, I got but the closest I got, I guess, was Stevie Wonder. But that was on violin. And that was many years ago. That wasn't that too, not too long ago. But anyway, I, I had also been exposed to the, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra because our teacher, our school, we would have field trips there when they would do the young people's concerts. So I knew what a violin was and I saw it in action on stage. And I just kind of thought it was cool. And then just to have an opportunity to learn it and play it just seemed a cool thing to me. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. When I played for my flute teacher, my flute teacher asked me one and one day in the lesson, 
she said, oh, you play, you're playing violin. Let me hear, because she could play that too. She was very talented. And so when I pulled out my violin and I wasn't like set, I mean, my technique was all wrong. She smiled at me. And then what she did was after my lesson, my flute lesson, she went to my mom and she says, if you really want her to learn to play violin, you need to get her some good teaching because she's not playing it. And so at the time in Detroit, there was a school. It was almost like, actually it was like a conservatory called the Detroit Community Music School. And it's where like Regina Carter started and many other great violin players that are actually coming out of Detroit, but it was a whole school. And so my mother was actually studying there with them. She was already at a very high level piano playing, of course, but she had her teacher and coach was there. And so she had seen all of these little kids because the Suzuki method had just hit Detroit. And in this, again, this is early seventies. And so she saw all these little kids with their instruments and stuff. And so she thought, you know what, maybe I'll just take her there. Uh, to study. So I did my audition there. I never auditioned anything like that. I was scared to death. My knees were knocking the whole thing. And I not, and right. And not realizing that I'm not, I'm just playing the way I know I got to play or whatever. And so the lady who ran the place, at least the string department, Jeannie Rupert was her name. And boy, she could be very tough, but she was really sweet to me. And she said something to the effective, I don't want you to feel bad, but Basically, we're going to have to teach you how to play all over again. And I was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> you know, so uh, so anyway, but she she got us me straight. And I, I had some wonderful experiences down there studying with her. I studied with her not one-on-one. I, stu- I think it was like the high-level kids got to study with her, the ones that were the semi-prodigies, the really talented folks, the Regina Carters, and my, my good friend um, Sylvia Davis, who's now Sylvia De La Serna. She's in Chicago, fabulous violinist she and regina started together at that school when they were four and so here i am 11 years old basically starting over again so i really do consider myself a late starter but my experiences there were phenomenal because it really was run like a conservatory we were really we were taught the expectations were high it was wonderful also because i had phyllis fleming who was a black teacher And I've said this many times in many interviews that I've had that I'm very thankful for my classical experience here in Detroit because it was full of black string players (laughs) and people who played classical music and things like that. That's the beauty of Detroit being a black city, a majority black city from that time until now. In that later, many years later, I was running into people from outside of Detroit and outside of Michigan who were black string players and had a completely different experience. They were always the only one or one of two. I was one of 25. So it was just, I didn't know that it was an issue until I started playing at other places. Mm -hmm. So I never, I'm very thankful for that. I never felt self-conscious. What I felt self-conscious about was the fact that I didn't know you could start really young. And I always felt like I was behind. And so I really, in my teenage years and my early college years, i worked really hard in my mind, it was like I was catching up, like I was trying to make up for all this lost time. Of course, you really can't do that, but but it also affected my self-esteem around playing. And I struggle with that even today, but not nearly as much anymore. But But a lot of it is from that, running into, like Regina and I met when we were t- teenagers, but we were introduced by, Sylvia and I lived down, her family lived down the street from me. And the first time I met Sylvia, she was already, I think we were like 12, so I had only been playing maybe two years, but she had been playing since she was four. 
And so when I came in and boy, she was practicing, I don't know, Vivaldi or something like that. And I, I was like, Oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near this, you know, what, what in the world? But so anyway, so that's really how I, all, I got started and it's been great. It's been great. You thought you were behind. So you're mm-hmm. constantly working to be further ahead than you think you are. And, and in reality, you probably weren't as far behind as you think you were. Mm-hmm. We've worked together and I've seen you still have that same thought like right like uh, just not quite there and i'm like looking at you going shoot i can't play that (laughs) (laughs) exactly we are we're our own worst critics and everything but and i'm i'm working well i won't say i'm working i am changing my because being a a personal coach which we'll talk about that later but i really do try to walk the talk and and i know what it means to have those kinds of doubts and things like that and i talk to my clients and my students and every we're human those doubts are going to come but it you don't need to sit with them yes. and so that's what i'm doing that's what i'm doing you'll hear me say those things but i'm going to go ahead and do it anyway you and i just played at the jazz festival and yes. i for that for me was like okay i played the jazz festival so many times but not like this we're up front and i was always in a, a jazz orchestra playing second violin or whatever, and that's fine and dandy, but there was never the kind of prominence that we had this time with our group sister strings. So it was, yeah, it was really awesome. But of course, immediately I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, now. But you know what, I I really said, it's not like you can walk off the stage and be like, you know what, never mind, I'm not going to do this. (laughs) You know, no, this is your opportunity. You play well, you do what you're, you have a good tone, you have good ideas when you're playing and I've stopped comparing myself to other players who may be more you know advanced or have more knowledge about jazz or things like that a lot of what I do I'm not real versed in the theory of jazz but my ear is very good my rhythm is good and I let that work for me and so yeah so I it creeps in, but I don't let it stay. And you can tell. It, it, you sound really good. Thank and you. And I enjoyed your solos at, at the Jazz Festival. That's, Thank that you. was fun to be there together doing that. So Thank you. And we all do definitely have those those fears as jazz artists in, yes. at all. Yes. Uh, the improvisation aspect is you're constantly jumping off of cliffs on purpose. So Yes. <laughs> yes. This is where we live. Absolutely. So I commend you for jumping off that particular cliff. So thank you. you. I will continue to jump as every chance I get. I'm just going to go into the deep end and do what I do. That's the only way you get better. Yes. Yeah, that's the only way you get better. And truly, whether it's jazz, classical, whatever genre, the more you do it, the easier it gets. So it may always be that sense of apprehension every time you get ready to start. You're never going to conquer that apprehension if you don't just walk through it or or do it. The analogy I often use Um, is like when you're teaching a child to tie their shoes. You're not going to teach them to tie their shoes by doing it for them or telling them, never mind, I'm going to just get you Velcros, (laughs) snaps, (laughs) forget it. So that's not going to work. You want them to struggle with it, figure it out. Eventually they get it. That's how we all learned. That's how we all learned. And now you can tie your shoes without even looking. So it's important. You're right. You're exactly right. It's important to continue to push ourselves. and, And then sometimes... I also talk about the vocabulary of how you're doing it. Sometimes I don't, especially pushing yourself sometimes seems like you're like really struggling. And so I have also changed the, my viewpoint about that. It's I'm not struggling with this. I just, I'm learning every time I approach the instrument. And quite frankly, I don't call myself a jazz 
violinist. I, I am a violinist that plays jazz because I want to respect those that really, really are um, more versed in this than I am. And that's not a comparison thing. That's just reality. But it doesn't diminish in any way what I bring you know, to the table when it comes to jazz and other genres that I've played in. That also, even just saying that, I feel a lot better than just, okay, I'm going to really push myself to get on that stage and do, you know, for me. Doing it the, uh, that way brings up some tension and it, re- and it recalls, it recalls a struggle, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm reimagining all of my vocabulary and encouraging my clients and my students to do too. You don't want to struggle. You don't want this to be a struggle because it's also about the journey, not just the de- destination. You learn so much in the journey. And you want to making sure that you're paying attention to all the opportunities and the, the little things along the way. Even the little bumps help us to get where we want to go. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you have most recently just started a coaching service. Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually, it's not really new. My sister and I, my sister, Dr. Angela Celeste May, she is a vocalist and a musician too, and but she's also a doctor of psychology. And so she and I, back in 1996, started our, our private practice. And that was a clinical practice. We were doing, um, Angela was doing psychological evaluations and I was doing counseling and we were running groups and doing, we were doing consulting too. We had some consulting contracts and we would go do like diversity training. This is in the 90s. Diversity training was really big back then. And do you have a background in this? Did you have training? You're a licensed counselor or a psychologist? Or- yes, I, yes. My, I have a master's degree in counseling. Okay. And my undergraduate is in, is in teaching elementary education with a minor in music. And then I did some post-bachelor work in music for two years down at Wayne State. And then I got my master's degree also from Wayne State University in Detroit okay. in counseling. And then I have, I, I'm a fully licensed counselor. Okay. So as a counselor, and there's schools of thought about this, but counseling and coaching, they have some similarities, but there's some specific differences. And my counseling background gives me coaching experience. There's some people that feel like you got to get certified as a coach, but really, and even the American Counseling Association endorses the fact that they, they don't disrespect coaches that get you know certified, but much of what we are as counselors, we can bring to the coaching. So I, that, that, I consider that my certification. So anyway, uh, we had our business going strong up until the recession. So about 2006, you know, for about a good 10 years, we had a big contract where we were providing services with a state agency. Um, and we were doing, in addition to the other things we were doing, it was, it was going very well. But then, like I said, the recession hit and then we lost that contract and things started to diminish. We had a wonderful office in downtown Detroit. <clears throat> we had to let that go because not as much revenue was coming in. But Angela was doing teaching and consulting. And then I was counseling at one of the local community colleges that's just north of here in in Oakland County, the county that's just north of uh, where Detroit is. And I actually started being adjuncting there when we opened our business. So in 1996, my life was my private practice, adjunct counseling at the community college, and then my all of my music, but teaching. I had a pretty full music studio. I had about 20, I could take up to 25 students and then performing, freelance performing and things like that. And so what happened was last year, and I know you may be bringing this up, but well, in 2018, I became a Kresge Artist Fellow, which we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Being around the other fellows and in that environment, 
really showed me like really big possibilities with my creative work and other things, just other things. And I started to realize that what I was doing at the college, because at this point in 2012, I became a full-time counselor at the college and full-time for us is not 40 hours. So it's 34 hours. But anyway, it was getting in the way of the other things that I wanted to do. In addition to being at the college, the work I was doing was wonderful. I loved it, but I wanted to do more of it and also reach a much broader audience. So I kind of felt like I had grown out of that way. So I said to my sister, I said, let's relaunch our business. But I started to realize that the virtual world, especially because we wanted to reach a, like, a worldwide audience if we could with the type of services that we have. And so last year, we made the decision that we were going to launch in the virtual world. Surprisingly enough, this was pre, nobody knew anything about COVID-19. We weren't even thinking about COVID-19. We just wanted a location independent version of our business and that we, we might have an office, a virtual office or a temporary office if we were going to see clients face to face and we're working all that stuff out. So in the process of, of reimagining our business, I realized, I said, every day at the office, when I'm at the college, I'm actually not doing therapy with my students because what, what I am at the college is a personal, I do personal counseling, academic counseling and career counseling. And really, we the personal counseling is not therapy because we're not set up to do that. We don't have the HIPAA stuff and this insurance and none of that kind of stuff. Because if we get a student who really needs something really deep, we have to refer them out. But we're able to do some things. And the some things we're doing is really coaching. That's what we're doing. I'm doing that every single day successfully for almost 30 years now. You know, I'm just like, this is really coaching that I'm doing. So I thought, you know what, that's really what I wanted to jump into in my own business. That's, the coaching is not, we, we had not done that in our business before. We were really doing the clinical stuff. And so that's what, in March of this year, we reimagined and relaunched our business, AM Man Associates Incorporated, which is our business name anyway, as right now, it's a coaching and consulting firm. We will eventually bring on the clinical stuff, but right now that's what we're doing. And so I provide personal and career, personal development and career coaching for creative professionals. And that's actually a, a pivot that I recently did. I started off, really, I can work with anybody, but I actually have a business coach myself. And so that's how I also know that coaching works if you put the time and the investment in it, um, because our business coach helped us get to where we wanted to be much faster. We were spinning our wheels about how do you do this online and how do you market yourself and what do you do? Da, 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 da. And she's she's a young, she's a millennial rocking it out here, doing it and has been doing it for a while. It's very successfully. And uh, working with her really got us where we needed to be in record time because we would probably still be trying to figure this out and maybe not doing it as successfully as we have. And so anyway, so in March of this year, we relaunched as a coaching and consulting service. And my business coach was saying to me, you have such influence in this creative world that you're in. She's not even here. She doesn't live in Michigan. Our business coach is now living in Connecticut. And, uh, and she's like, the influence you have, I'm noticing the engagement in your social media uh, sites and all of that. She was right because I started noticing like the discovery calls I was doing. And a discovery call is basically like a pre-call that you do with a potential client. And it was mostly coming from... Mm-hmm. creative professionals. And so she says, why not? If you want to do this other stuff later, you can do that. But right now, that's your, that seems to be your warm audience, market to creative professionals. And a lot of the things that I've been successful doing in the creative space and in the mental health space was all helpful to, very helpful to a lot of creative professionals. And a lot of the 
calls that I'm getting regarding, you know, they're saying, we're seeing that you have been so successful in your creative life doing music noir and launching this coaching business and presenting the concerts. I'm a house concert present. I have my own house concert series. All of those kinds of things has been attracting my ideal clients. I've been attracting those types of calls, which is great. And so the clients that I've worked with have, I have one, actually I've had two writers. I haven't had any musicians yet, but I've got uh, two writers that I'm working with and they've been, it's just been phenomenal. It's really been phenomenal. And so I really like this new pivot. And so that's what we're doing now. That's a huge pivot. Yeah, it's great. It's good. It's fantastic. You're doing the the pivot to the coaching and stepped away from the teaching as much as far as uh, violin lessons and that sort of thing. Yes. Were you teaching flute too? I was teaching flute and violin lessons um, up until, geez, about, I'd say about six years. It's been a little while. It's been about five, six years that I've had a full studio. And right now with all the things that I'm doing, that's something I'm not really looking to do. What I have, it's kind of, I have a niche in that too. I have, I seem to be attracting adult women <laughs> that want to play. And actually really, I, I actually had a couple men some years ago too, That, but it seems to be like adults who, which I never knew that there was this term, but there it's called recreational playing. So these are recreational musicians that used to play years ago and they're coming back to it, or they've always wanted to play and they picked up. So over the past six years, I guess it's been about six, almost seven years now, that's exclusively what I've been doing, but I've been limiting it. I really, I've cut way back. I'm only taking like about five students. Right now I actually only have three. And I have a recreational women's group called the Violin Divas. And uh, these are all women, same thing. They're not really trying to you know, audition and do all those kind of things, but it's a way for us, me to get them together for musical fellowship and fun. We can't get through the rehearsals. They're laughing so much. It's hilarious. Um, (laughs) It's also a teaching group for me because I bring them music that's challenging for them. I would say they were probably, the range would be advanced beginners to maybe beginning advanced and but mainly in that intermediate range, but it's been fun. We've been together. I've had like actually three, including my sister, Three of the ladies have been with me since the beginning. I think we started this in, ooh, like 2003. So it's been going for quite some time, a lot of fun. We've had some ladies come and go, but yeah, like I said, I've had three, because my sister studied violin for 15 years, but she really, vocal was really her thing. That was her thing. So this has been wonderful for her, because not only did she pick up violin in this, the Violin Divas, but I t- tried her out on viola, mm. and she took to it like a duck to water. She plays actually viola in the group, and sometimes she alternates back on violin. So, yeah, it's great. Viola's not me. A lot of people switch back and forth. It's heavy, and I, 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 was, at, I was encouraged, actually, by Joseph Striplin, who is in the Detroit Symphony. He's one of the—actually, he is the first African-American violinist in the Detroit Symphony, and he encouraged me back when I was a teenager— you really should pick up viola. You, you get a lot more jobs if you do both. You can do both. It just never took for me. It just never took to me. But yeah, so that's what I do. So yeah, I have a limited studio right now. But teaching is still in my blood. I'm, I've been a teacher all my life. When we were little and we would play with Barbie dolls, Barbie had to go to college. You know, so, <laughs> you know, and my, my mother bought me a chalkboard. And teaching is really, I mean, I come from a, a legacy of teaching. And that's really, it informs a lot of what I do, a lot that teaching, you know, background definitely does. 
as far as teachers in the like Detroit area, I studied with Emily Austin and Morris Hochberg. Yeah, uh, so did I. Both of them. Okay. Yes, I had, right. I had I had Emily for years. I had Emily. I studied. I probably studied with Emily for about seven years. Okay, and I Morris only got her for once, but for one yeah, year, it made a difference. Yeah, and actually, and Morris is saying, see, it's the opposite for me. I studied with Morris just briefly because um, he was down at Wayne State. He did my audition. I think I actually really had some a couple coachings with him. Okay. Um, but I mainly studied with Emily Austin. Emily And uh, Emily Austin was the first, I think she was the first woman in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And I got her because my friend Sylvia was study, had studied with her for many years. Mm. And when it was time for me to get a teacher... Uh, actually, this was during the time that I did the post-bachelor's work in music at Wayne. And one of the reasons I went to Wayne State University is because they had a roster of DSO musicians you could study with. And although I had very good teachers, none of them were in the DSO. So I was like, oh, this would be a great opportunity. So that was one reasons I, one of the reasons I went. And the other reason was because I did a lot of study with chamber music. I love chamber music, even over orchestra music. And so I had a lot of opportunity to study chamber music and perform chamber music so that was awesome yeah really awesome to do that i'm gonna have to come and play with the divas then because i never got to play chamber music at all oh. i started playing jazz which that oh, was the okay the chamber music that i ever got uh so i never had that opportunity we would love to have you, you, you they would they would love to have you they would love to so that's fantastic so it's fun to hear that we had some of the same teachers too because yes i I always wondered who people studied with in Detroit. So mm-hmm. that's fabulous. Yep. So you've got all of this background and it's fun to watch you <laughs> create your life the way that you've been creating your life. And it's fun to do it. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think you were going to be where you are now? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I did not. I, I was fortunate that I grew up in a very portive household. The whole you can do whatever you want to do kind of thing. Although my grandmother was like, within reason, <laughs> you know, she like she didn't want me to go into like pop music and jazz and things like that because in her mind there was a lot of pitfalls with that, which there are. She was absolutely right. And her main thing was drugs. She just well, it, it wasn't not rooted in reality. Not like every jazz musician was on, musician was on drugs. That. I was a little bit naive and they kept me sheltered. And so, because to the point that like, I never went away to camp. Mm. My grandma, yeah, they, they, that overnight stuff, they weren't having it. If it wasn't a day camp, I got a lot of good teaching at Oakland University. We had a great day camp. Wayne did too. But interlocking, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, no, <laughs> yeah, nope, nope. If you couldn't be home in your own bed at the end of the night where she could keep an eye on you, it wasn't happening. Yeah. It wasn't happening. And so, Blue Lake, none of those things, none of those kinds of things. But it's like I said, that speaks, though, to the wonderful artist, artistic community that's here in Detroit, because I didn't have to go away. I got phenomenal training here because there were teachers that ran day camps like at, at OU and at, at you know, Oakland University and at Wayne State University and, and other places, too. Looking then, I was watching, like I said, I told you I met Regina Carter when we were teens mm. and that was it was right when she was starting to really do jazz I that was at the beginning of when she knew she wanted to do jazz had seen Stefan Grappelli and really wanted to do this stuff and what happened was the way we met because like I mentioned Sylvia de la Serna was her good friend one day back then you could get your driver's license at 16 and Sylvia was just a renegade she had no fear she would just do whatever so she was like she came she called me one day at the house and she says, listen, I want you to meet my friend Regina. She's doing like some wild things on the instrument and check her out or whatever. 
I was like, okay. So hopped in the car. We went over there. She lived in another beautiful historic district, the university district on Oak Drive, I think is where her, her mom's house was. And I walked in. It was her. She had a band. It was her and William Banfield and I don't even know who else. And they were like jamming. And I was just, and she's playing and I was blown away. I was like, hey, what? okay, I'm already feeling insecure in the classical world. And now <laughs> yeah. there's this? Yikes. <laughs> point, no, I'm never thinking I'm going to do anything like this. Oh, there, that wasn't even in my mind. And of course, that's as a teenager. And actually, I don't really even know what I thought. I, and now that I'm thinking about it, did I want to play the violin so I could be a soloist or play in an orchestra. Some people think those kinds of things. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know. But I know that later, before Regina uh, officially, like before she moved to Germany and then New York and all that stuff, she was still playing around here in various groups. And I remember when, for the Detroit Jazz Festival, some of our iconic Detroit jazz musicians like Donald Walden and Marcus Belgrave and Kenny Cox and all of them, really wanted, in the late 80s and early 90s, they really wanted to have strings as part of their, the things that they were writing and producing and things like that to present at the jazz festival and otherwise. And the initial group of string players in the late 80s, I wasn't in those, but in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, I was, that's when I was, we were playing at the jazz festival like every year and other places. And so Regina was often, although she was doing some traveling, she, her bass was still here. It was right before Straight Ahead, the, the group the group Straight Ahead. And uh, before she had joined that and that had been formed. Mm-hmm. So she was still playing here. And I remember that she would say to some of us that were doing this, she said, I'm out here on my own. It would be nice to have string players that want to learn jazz. So that I remember her saying that. And because we were watching her and I, that was my first time thinking, wow, that would be so cool to be able to improvise and do those things. But never thinking that I was going to really actually do that. And then, but we were, we did learn some technique, obviously, because we, we were playing licks and backgrounds and things like that. But Marcus and Donald would talk to us about the technique and not using so much vibrato and right. swing eighths and, you know, all of the, all of those kind of basic things. Nothing made, we didn't talk about the theory of things, but they really wanted us to really, of course, get the style, the stylistic kind of things. And so she would come and oftentimes she would be the concert mistress of the jazz or string orchestra. And then, of course, when during the solo sections, they would hand her the changes and she would solo over them and stuff like that. And I just thought that was amazing. And so at that time, also, I was friends with Gwen Laster. These are black string players in Detroit who have gone on to have prominent careers. Gwen Laster, Marlene Rice, and the two of them also started doing jazz and things like that. And then eventually they ended up leaving Detroit also and making homes elsewhere. Um, Gwen is on the East Coast. I know Marlene, I know, was down in, I believe, in Savannah for a while. She might be back on the East Coast. I'm not sure. But anyway, so we're just watching them, but not, again, not think, totally not thinking I'm going to lead a band or in any of that kind of stuff. So how that all came about was actually we performed at, I was performing, this is probably maybe mid to late, no, late 90s. I think I did a, we did a set was in the string orchestra at the jazz festival and my friend Patricia Moore, Pat Moore, was a violinist who was living here. I don't think she's living here now, but we did it like two years in a row and I think instead of Regina coming back, Gwen was now coming. Actually, one year was Gwen as the concert mistress. The other year was Marlene Rice. As the, it was like bringing the Detroiters back home to lead the orchestra or whatever. And Pat looked at me and she says, we can do this. We can learn to do. We don't have to be sitting back here all the time. Let's, let's do this. So we 
to the, Pat and I started trying to figure this stuff out ourselves, finding people. I remember Regina used to tell me, you don't have to have a jazz violin teacher. You can learn from pianists. You, you should learn from pianists and saxophonists. And so she did, vocalists, all of that kind of stuff. Do you have a broader range? And so we started seeking out people like that. We studied for a short time with Eric Nordine, who has a band called The Strange. And turns out Eric's uh, sister, Michelle uh, Nordine, and I went to high school together. So we studied with him. I actually met Diane Monroe of Uptown String Quartet when I was involved with the Sphinx organization, which is a wonderful organization ex- uh, expanding diversity in classical music. She was a, a juror for this competition one year. And so we got to talking. And I told her, I said, I'm at a point in my life where I do think I want to learn jazz. I want to learn to improvise. I want to play. And she said, if you're open, I'm willing to teach you. If you want to come to Philadelphia. And I was like, that was a no brainer. I was like, absolutely. I'm coming to Philadelphia. So I went to her house. I flew to Philadelphia a few times and we studied together and developed a friendship too. She's a wonderful, she's an amazing player. And an amazing pedagogue. You know, she really can teach the instrument, too. And just, I loved her style and her personality and just everything. She's a wonderful person. And I haven't seen her in a long time, but every now and then we, as a matter of fact, right after I received the Kresge Fellow Award, within a month, she received a Doris Duke Award, big one. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so we connected on Facebook, and I was like, guess what? And I was like, congratulations. And so it was just awesome. So, she was congratulating me, but that was really nice. But, And so then I started, one of the things that I can't remember who told, Marion Hayden, was Marion Hayden, the bass, great, our great friend and bassist, Marion Hayden, who said to me, this is great doing all the studying, she said, but where you're going to learn is getting in a group. That's, you got to get, you got to find a group, <laughs> get in a group. So I'm like, okay, how's this going to happen? But it's funny because when you You know, another lesson from this that I learned and that I teach my talk to my clients and my students about is that you can have an intention about something, but you need to be convicted in that intention. That's what propels you forward to your goals. And so I became, okay, determined that I was going to find a band. And so I was in a couple bands. I was in one with uh, Malik Alston. Malik is really known in like the techno house music world a little bit in from Detroit and elsewhere too but he wanted to start bringing like live more live strings or live uh, musicians into the things that he was doing so he does a hybrid like his sound is like house music but it's really from live instruments and so that was interesting and that was my first chance to play the movement festival downtown being up front so that was wild I remember my dad used to love that movement festival, and we surprised him. We took him down, and he just loved it. Boom, 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 boom. He just used to love that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so here he is. You know, of course, all ages go down there. So he, my dad probably was in his 70s. And so I had my brother take him down there. I said, don't, this is when I'm playing. Don't tell him I'm on stage. And he was like, that's my daughter up there. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. <laughs> it was wild. Um, so I was with that band. Then I was with another band. They were a group of guys who were playing like a lot of Motown stuff and older soul things and some newer things too. And uh, so that was great to add that, but it wasn't, and no shade to any guys that are listening, but they're just, I don't know. It was just, they guys work differently. Some of them do. (laughs) And especially, well, and especially this particular group, they were mostly getting together to get away from their wives and because the rehearsals, 
wouldn't start for an hour after they've had talked about sports and had their beers. And I was just like, can we just play, please? <laughs> you know, can we? So we did, but it was good experience because it wasn't like it was a string section. It was me and well, along with the guitars and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, it was helpful, mm-hmm. but I really got to a point where it was getting to be like a oh, waste of time and that, doing that. And it was my sister who kept saying to me, you need to start your own band. You need to start your own band. You're not going to find what you want. Start your own thing. I, I resisted. I was like, because again, I'm like, me, leader? No, no, that's it. But, but I hit a wall. I was just like, okay, something's got to give. So let me start my own band. So that's, so Patricia, funny, because she had also started working with some guys too. And she was experiencing the same thing. And this is the group she was with. So she and I got together and I brought in Leslie because I knew Leslie was, a, Leslie's been an improviser since she was a teen like Regina. So she, I knew she was experienced with this thing. And then also I met Jovia, Jovia Armstrong, our percussionist. And by the way, I'm saying these names, Leslie DeShazer, who's a jazz, a classical and jazz violist. But Jovia Armstrong is the fabulous percussionist from Detroit. She relocated to Chicago and now she's in LA or out West in California. But she and I were in Malik's band together. And both of us were just like, we would go to these rehearsals rolling our eyes like, because the guys would be arguing over absolutely nothing. And it was just crazy. So we were just, I said, I'm thinking of starting something. The other thing about starting this group too was that the music we were playing with the other groups, it was okay, but we had a broader interest. That world music aspect, a lot of us really liked because Leslie was in doing African dance. And of course, Jovia was doing very sophisticated world music. And she wasn't just doing Latin percussion. She was doing all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. polyrhythms and all of this kind of thing. And I wanted to, I started to see that I really wanted to bring that into it. And I specifically, when I really sat and I'm a very spiritual person, I'm a Christian, and I just really like meditate and pray, okay, if I'm really going to do this, well, I really want to see this. And it came to me, that I wanted it to be different in terms of not having a drummer, like a full kit, and not having like keyboards and singers and everybody's got that. So I wanted our sound to have a very specific sound, which it does now because we are strings and percussion. And then we have we have a guitarist usually. So there's no like keyboards or that kind of thing. Yeah, so it's a good old fashioned string band. <laughs> yeah, basically, right, with a little world music, well, a lot of world music influence, exactly. So, it, yeah, you're exactly right. But years ago, if you had told me, I, I think about it, it's funny you should say that, Tia, because sometimes every now and then I do think that if I had told 16-year-old me <laughs> that this would be your life, I don't know, I, actually, it's a good thing I didn't know. I'd probably been scared to death, and, oh, you know, because that was, because that's who I was at 16, just still be in the background or even in 21 or 25 or whatever. It really wasn't until in my 30s and 40s that I started making this shift into this is maybe I should be stepping up. I've always been told I was a leader. I resisted it for many years, but I'm here now and I accept it and I embrace it. And uh, yeah, this is a great journey. And therefore the birth of Music Noir. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So where did the name come from? So the name came because since we were going to have these world music influences in there, I don't remember whose house we were at, but it was, maybe it was at Pat's house when we were having a rehearsal when she was one of my first members. I said, with all these world music influences, I feel like we need to have a name that's not English, like an English name. And I thought about, you know, we did a lot of thinking about it. And I said, the underlying theme of all of our music is that it's based on the black experience. There's always that 
groove, that that spiritual center, all of it comes from, everything we're doing is coming from Black music. We're not doing anything that's from other play. We've done, like our song Shrug is from in Morocco. It's just, even when we stepped outside of that, it's still, we still put our soulful, because that's my interpretation of Black, Blackness is soulfulness too, has been put on there. So initially I said, somehow maybe we can do, call ourselves, I don't know, music of Black. I don't know how it came about. But the thing is, we were trying to do it in uh, maybe an African dialect. And Leslie, she's got a lot of colleagues and friends and people that she knows that speaks various languages in uh, the diaspora, at least of the continent. And nothing was working. <laughs> so just, because the other thing is you want to have something that people can kind of pronounce when they introduce you, <laughs> you know, kind of. And this stuff wasn't rolling off the tongue. So then I said, no, I don't speak Spanish, but I know Spanish pretty well. And so I was like, but Musica Negra... I don't know if we can do that. So I said, maybe let's do the French version. So I had a student at the time. Actually, she's one of one of my students that did went on to do really well. And she was very fluent in French. And I said, how do you say black music in French? And she said, music noir. And she said, it's a, in that context, noir is feminine. I don't know a lot about French, but I know, of course, Spanish is feminine and masculine. And she said, so you have to make sure it's N-O-I-R-E. Mm. Because a lot of people mistake and say N-O-I-R. And then you have to have that E on the end. So for the most part, it hasn't been too bad with the pronunciation. We did one gig at a festival where the woman pronounced it music no iron. <laughs> and my husband has no chill. My husband has no chill. He was just, he, he did this, this big turnaround looking at her. Are you kidding me? And so during the set, even after she introduced us I kept saying it hoping that she would pick it up at least try to work with it something she came back at the end and said the same thing <laughs> let's hear it from music fire <laughs> it's just wow <laughs> wow okay so so that has been that's been that and then so I was it was interesting though I was interviewed um and I won't shout them out but anyway I was interviewed by an HBCU that has a wonderful radio station or whatever. And the DJ at the time said to me, she says, we're trying to encourage everybody to have names that you can pronounce. So I was trying to be nice, but I said, but we're, you're also at a college. So we're going to teach people that this is the language. These are the languages and black people speak French. And kind of, she was like, you got a point there. But anyway, but we haven't had, I think I've only had one other place. We did, con- oh, I think you were there. We did concert, we did concert of colors. You were in our band. And I remember the woman that introduced us there. She had, she had a rough time with it, with it also. I, American pronunciation usually is musique noir. And then, but I try to just at least go in noir and you know, musique noir. And then I have another um, young man that I mentor. He's from Jamaica. He's an artist, fabulous artist. And he's fluent in French, and he always says it exactly the way it's supposed to be. And my other student, they say it exactly the way it's supposed to be said. But interestingly enough, on our social media, of course, we have a lot of French fans because some of them, I think, think that it's dealing with the genre of black music. But but it's interesting. So we have French fans, and we also have a lot of fans from from Africa that speak French. So a lot of those various countries have. French influences. So it's been interesting, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love that there's so many different entities that you brought together 
in that group. Mm -hmm. uh, and the sounds mm -hmm. are really great because there's a lot of original compositions too. Because Leslie has written several pieces, Jovia has written several pieces, you've written pieces. Yes. I think Leah Salevi's husband wrote a piece. Yes, Chelabi. Chelabi, yes. sorry. Yes, so she, right. No, that's okay. That's okay. She gets that a lot too. But yeah, her husband, yeah, he's written one for us. He's written one. He's a phenomenal writer. And that's another thing. I never thought I'd be writing this type of music. Part of it is, and it's a challenge for me because I don't have a lot of the theory and all of that kind of stuff. I write because, I wrote because we had to. We needed pieces. <laughs> but it's been nice because I've been able to sit down and just think about what is my voice as a writer and music writer and things like that. So yeah, that is, we didn't want to be a cover band. That was the other uh, thing. And I knew I had talented people in the group that could write and had written. And I wanted to showcase that too. And our original tunes have gotten a lot of great engagement and exposure and critiques. We've had some national critiques and things like that. And so I, I love that. I love that our music is, our music, we call it world jazz, but it really, you have to call things sometimes, but I don't yeah, think, yeah. I know, but it's like, really, I don't even know. I was, the first interview that we ever did in print was done by a musician, Nadir Amawali, and he's known, he goes by Nadir, and he's a guitarist and he has his own band. He does the black rock thing and he's phenomenal but he used to write for it's now called black magazine it was before it was called african-american family magazine so that was our first one and i remember when he was interviewing me he was like i can't put my finger on what kind of music you guys do and i hadn't even at the time we were calling it we called it world fusion mm -hmm. and then which is kind of what it is but i don't know even some of that isn't that like you wouldn't call twilight my song twilight world fusion it's a semi-jazz yeah semi-jazz ballad right. semi <laughs> you know what I mean? but anyway we don't really worry about that we've taken on the world jazz moniker and it seems to work for us to give people an idea of what they're going to hear but i often when i'm emceeing a show sometimes i'll say that we say world jazz but you're going to hear a lot of different influences including classical music in what we do so you have um what three four albums now we, we have three. We have the first one is called Good Hair. That one was our intro. That The debut, my intention for the debut, and I, these are all projects that I executive produce and put together. Um, my intention for that one was just to show the breadth of what we do within music noir. So that one has Twilight, the ballad. It has a funk tune. I, actually, I wrote that one too. It has Latin tunes on it. We did two cover tunes. We did one the La Fiesta by Chick Corea. Mm -hmm. And we also did Eleanor Rigby, the song that I've been following forever. That song, I just absolutely love um, Eleanor Rigby from the Beatles um, because it is the first, maybe, oh, maybe not now the only, but it was the first rock song that was ever done just with the string quartet. That's all they've got. Mm -hmm. There's no drums. There's nothing else in there. And it was, I remember the first time I heard it, it, I was riveted. I was like, wow, I must have heard it a bunch of times. And I always wanted to record it, so we did that. There's the breadth of that. Then you always got to have a holiday release. <laughs> got, that's it. That's evergreen. Christmas has got to put that holiday release up. And the thing about that I noticed, too, is that I'm also a member of the Recording Academy for the, the Grammys. And I always noticed when the nominees and stuff, we would get the list of the nominees we were supposed to be voting for and all that thing, that there was always somebody that had released some Christmas thing that actually made it to the final nomination. So that, that just kind of made me think, 
yeah, we should probably do something. It's a Christmas album. So we didn't really do, I chose purposely not to do some of the the jingle bells, those kinds of things. We didn't really do those. We did a medley of some, like, a little town of Bethlehem and We Three Kings and that kind of thing. But I also did I Wonder as I Wander. That's another one that's a beautiful piece. And we actually, we may be releasing a single. I'm going to talk to the the ladies about it because there's a fabulous um, violinist, Christian Howes, who you may know too. Yes, no Christian. Um, he's, He's amazing. Christian's amazing. Last year, last Christmas, he did a version of Sleigh Ride? I can't even remember what it was. It was like crazy. And he's amazing. And his arrangement, he does the he does all the voices on his instrument, the acapella, and he's, I think he plays guitar too, but he was doing the strumming on his violin. But anyway, Leah mentioned it. She said, that would be like a crazy piece to learn. I said, let me reach out to him. So I did. And he was like, oh yeah, because we've talked before. Yeah. And, and so he actually, he arranged it for us and I have it. It's tough, but you know, because Leah was like, ooh, I don't know. I said, be careful what you wish for. Now we, you know, we got it. So I don't know. We might, I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Everybody's schedules are busy, but I think eventually we'll probably release it as a single. But, and then the last record that we released um, in 2017 was called Reflections Re- Rebreathe. And that came about because of Jobia. Jobia said, this time, I think we should do something more focused, like a project uh, release. And so, in fact, as a matter of fact, we were in this room that I'm room here right now. She came over, and behind the screen, there's a couch. And we were sitting on the couch, and we were talking, like, what can we do? What do we do? And, of course, it was always going to be woman-centric. We were always going to make sure it was that. That's our thing. We want women to, of all walks of life to be in the forefront. And she's, we came up with the idea that we would do a song that highlights what, what I termed woman warriors of the arts. And so that would be women who not only had fantastic artistic careers, but also were social justice warriors too. And that included us, all of us, you too. We're always, our soul and our hearts are in social justice causes. We don't ignore these things. We speak out and we use our platforms to talk about these kinds of things. And so my idea was that anything we wrote would, we would have a muse, some sort of muse, if you wanted to do like the song that I wrote, she called She, my muse was Alice Coltrane. Mm. And the idea was not to imitate or anything like that, but to be inspired by. And what I took from that is one, of course, she was definitely into the social justice and the spiritual realm and all of that. All her music, even the chanting music that she did after she converted over and still had that groove to it. You know what I mean? So that was the thing Mm -hmm. that I wanted to just at least capture in she with that. And then, so the uh, and if we did a song that was a cover, it would be of someone. So we did the Nina Simone, which of course you're very prominent on that piece, which we appreciated. Sounds you did a fabulous job on that, <laughs> absolutely Thank fabulous you. job on that one. So pick up that CD so we can hear it to everybody listening, so you can hear <laughs> hear the fabulous stuff that Tia did on that. But so Nina Simone, the reflections, the the title track reflections is Jovia's tribute to sculptor Elizabeth Catlett. Because one of Jovia's mentors is um, Elizabeth's son, Francisco Catlett. Francisco Mora Catlett is his is Elizabeth Catlett's son, and Jovia studied with him for many years, and she still keeps in touch with him. And Miss Catlett passed, or she might be Doctor Catlett, I'm not sure, passed away. She wanted to do something to honor her, so that's what Reflections is about. And if even if you didn't have a muse, again, we're celebrating who we are. I don't. It's muses and. I want people to always understand that there are people that are maybe well more well known than you are, but you bring just as much to the table 
as someone that's a quote unquote celebrity or icon or those kinds of things, you just, there's a lot of things within you that are iconic, that are celebratory, those type of things. So I didn't want this project just to be about the Nina Simones and the, the more prominent people. But if we did something, it's also about who we are as women and what we bring to the table for that. So that was a wonderful project. I'm very proud of that project. It was one that not only had fantastic original music and, and interpretations of music on it, but the packaging itself is beautiful and it turned out very well. The graphic designers really interpreted my vision very well. It, on the album on the inside, there are faded pictures of women's faces and those were actually, my father was also a visual artist and he he was a fabulous visual artist and he loved to draw women. And so I've got, I don't know, probably about 150 or more pictures of, of women that he drew. Faces, body types, nudes, all kinds of beautiful work. And so what I did was I picked about, I don't know, maybe 10 of them or something like that and had them faded in the background. It was my way of honoring him because he passed in 2010. But I thought that was beautiful, including he had done a picture of my mom. And so my mom's in one of those, you know, one, a drawing of him. The other thing that I really loved about that release is that I also had an opportunity to have a writer. And so Marsha Philpot, who's also known as Marsha Music, she's a prominent Detroit figure here. She talks, she's interviewed all over the world all the time about music in Detroit, history of Detroit, things like that. Her father um, owned a very prominent record shop back in the uh, Black Bottom days when Paradise Valley, in, that's the area of Detroit that was just a wealth of everything in, in the Black community that unfortunately, like in many cities, got obliterated before the freeway system that went through it. Just they completely removed it. But her father... Joe's Record Shop, and he was one of the first to record Aretha Franklin when she was even in her teens because he was also recording her father's sermons. Hmm. So I really, I went to her and I said, I want minor notes for this one. And she was, her eyes got big and she said, you have just fulfilled a dream of mine because I have always wanted to write album liner notes. And boy, did she write those notes. She's a phenomenal writer. And so I'm very happy because the other thing I'm moving towards is collaboration. Mm -hmm. I want to do more things with other snaps to that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> more collaboration. I have another group that I, I, I actually put together for a quick project that we did called sisters. I called it Nina strings after Nina Simone, Nina strings. And it was just me and two of the ladies that I mentor Alex way, who's also a fellow Kresge fellow. It was so nice to have a former student, and someone I mentor get a Kresge fellowship with me of the same year, and Ashley Nelson. And so we were, I was uh, approached by another Kresge fellow who's a dancer, Erica Stowell, and I think that's how you pronounce it, Stowall. And she uh, wanted to have some kind of string, something going on with this dance that, that she was choreographing for this pr presentation we did out in the field. It was at Eliza Howell Park in Detroit. It was beautiful, well done. And again, I had set an intention uh, even before that I wanted to do collaborations and here this opportunity came up, but it wasn't really, it, music noir didn't fit for that. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to, and I've been doing a lot of that too and preaching this too, that if you don't have an opportunity, you make one. She came to me thinking that she was going, we were going to use music noir. When she described what she wanted, I said, that, that probably isn't going to fit 
not to mention trying to get everybody's schedules together to do all that. So I said, let me do something a little different, scale down. And so I did, I founded Nina Strings. But Nina Strings really is, it's my thing that if I need something on the side quick to do, it can be whatever I want it to be, whatever um, personnel I want it to be, whatever instrumentation I want it to be, but mainly strings. And so we put together this wonderful presentation that we did and it was just it was so amazing and so that's another collaboration i've also released we, uh, music noir has two music films i mean they're not really video i don't like to call them videos because they're a little deeper than that and so that was collaboration with filmmakers and cinematographers which is something that i have, had wanted to do and it, there's in one of the films there's a dancer so there's more here we go again collaboration with choreographers so that was awesome too so that just amazing amazing where did you find the filmmakers um that there's always a story with me <laughs> so well that's good that's oh, what i want to know <laughs> no i know i know okay well really god all of this is god because i tell you i couldn't plan half the stuff that happens again i just make my intention and just say I, I, my prayers are always this is what i want if i'm supposed to have it make it happen if not Okay, we'll move on to the next thing. So I can, Tia, I swear to you, I don't even know other than, like I said, God. One day there was an event. They've had it for a couple of years, of course, not this year due to COVID, but it was something called, I forget what it, it has, it had a Detroit in the name, but it was basically like an opportunity for a bunch of vendors to get together at Eastern Market to do their wares. And this was separate and from the regular Eastern Market weekend where everybody comes and shops. And Eastern Market, by the way, for those of you that are not in Detroit, Eastern Market is one of the oldest open farmer's market in the United States since the late 1800s. And so every weekend, actually it's open all during the week, but generally every weekend, farmers come and bring their wares, flowers, food, all kinds of stuff. And there are shops down there too. So it's a wonderful historical place here in Detroit. But anyway, so they had this thing and I think I was on the mailing list. I don't know. But I got in and I said, this looks interesting. I think I was just looking for something to do. But it was really probably God going, come on, you need a, you're going to need a cinematographer. Go down there. We're going to take you down there. But anyway, so I went down there and I'm walking around or whatever. And at this one table was this young couple. They're Filipino. And they, were, they had a video showing like their, I guess it was a, video, a release that they had recently done. It was beautifully done. It was beautifully done. I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember standing there being intrigued about it. And then I was like, we're going to be releasing, I'm thinking of this in my head. Yeah, we are going to be releasing a release. It would be nice. We've never had a video done ever. So this will be great. So I started talking with them. And of course, and mainly they're, it's so funny. They're a wonderful couple. It's Eden and Thad. And their company is called Real Clever Films, R-E-E-L like the real clever films uh-huh. and their personalities are the complete opposite. So Eden is, she's on it and she's talking to you and she's giving you it and this, we're going to do all this awesome. Pottery. And he's literally this. You don't hear us saying like, he's, he's <laughs> <Silent>. absolutely <laughs> silent most of the time. He's usually smiling or he'll say he's, he does not speak, but he's brilliant at what he does. Cause he's really the one that does most of like the editing and all that kind of stuff. She's more like the conceptualization. And although she knows how to do all that stuff too. And she's definitely the mouthpiece of the two of them. But we really hit it off and we started talking and I kept her information. And it took about a year to get to the fruition, like maybe a little bit more in the year. Um, but we finally got together and you've seen the videos. Their work is amazing. Yes. Amazing. Mm-hmm. 
As a matter of fact, they also were hired by Kresge Arts in Detroit as of last year. Really nice stuff. Yeah, and so they're doing some of the Kresge uh, Fellows films now, too. They're doing it again this year, too. But anyway, I couldn't have been happier. And just even vibing with them and... But we've become great friends. She considers me now a mentor, which is great and awesome. And it's just, it's great. So that's how I found them. Oh. It just, it happened and it worked out so well. I love that you have a story for everything too. That <laughs> It is. Uh-huh. It's just, that's my life. Story that's my life. Your life. <laughs> yep. Which has been crazy. Been totally crazy. Oh, that's mm-hmm. fantastic. All right. If you're talking to, if you're coaching mm-hmm. one of your clients now and you've yes. got a new creative and say they're 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 already in their thirties or their forties mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do. What kinds mm-hmm. of things would you tell them? Okay, first of all, it's very personalized. Um, yes. But I can tell you because I had one potential client ask me, like she wanted to know, like specifically what would happen. And I said, that's not really how coaching works, and it's actually not how therapy works either. It, it this is a relationship. So you come to me with what your dream is, what it is you want to accomplished. Many of the people that I'm talking to are not, they're not new at this at all. There's a lot of, but a lot of them, they're trying to either make them trying to make a change or get something off the ground or that kind of thing. So I can tell you the overall pillars of things that, and, and I fit the specific stuff that they want into these things. And, and we adjust, it's flexible. One is mindset. That's the first thing. Most of the people that I'm talking to, they're talking to me because they know what they want to do. Although they always say, I have no idea. Yes, you do. Okay, so that's the first thing. I'm trying to realign their mindset to a, one of power and one of control. You know, obviously, I don't, and I don't mean like you can control everything, but they come to, with this whole, oh, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. That doesn't serve it, your purpose. And actually, in a lot of respects, that's not true at all. It's not true at all. You've leaned into this panic, you know what I mean? But you really, when I break things down to to people about the types of accomplishments they've had and just a lot of different things, a lot of different things. I frequently hear, oh yeah, you're right. You know what I kind of think? Because you're so leading into that negativity and that panic that you're not really thinking about who you are and what you bring. So that's one thing. Mindset is huge because if you don't, you, when, even when I talk to my students at the college, most of them are talk to me generally about their academic path. But I always, before we get off the call or when we were face-to-face, before I let them out of my office, I want to talk about what's going on with you personally. You know, how are you feeling? Because if you don't have this together inside your head and your body and mind, body, and spirit, the, the academic plan or the career plan is not, it's going to get derailed. So we do spend quite a bit of time with that. And then it's just a matter, it really is just a matter of, another one of my pillars is like communication, being able to communicate what you want, not only to yourself, but to others. So, because most of the time, the creators that talk to me, like I said, a lot of them are having projects that they want to uh, release or writings that they want to do or whatever. Um, Or maybe they want to pivot off of, because right now we're in COVID and there's not a lot of performance opportunities. I've been very blessed that I've been able to bring on musicians because I have my house concert series, which we were able to still do in, not in homes, but in backyards. And I also now am the music curator for a local coffee house. Talking about not waiting on other people. Again, this whole, uh, there, there are no gigs for me. There might be, if you are willing to take on more of an entrepreneurial mindset, 
and present yourself in a certain way, but you have to communicate that. You have to communicate that because you want to create excitement for the things that you want to do, mm. not just for other people, but for yourself also. You can't gather excitement for other people if you're not excited about what you do. So that communication. And then also just constantly attacking fear and that vocabulary around fear. I, I try to as much as possible. Actually, I, I do it because... Because that's also something I'm removing from my vocabulary is that that try. I don't try. I do this. We talk frequently about if, if someone says something to me in a negative way, I will say to them, okay, how can we say, well, you do this in therapy too. How can you say that differently? How can we reframe that so it's more comfortable to you? And then how does that feel once you do that? One of the things that has come up a lot for some of the creatives I'm talking to is like pricing, their fees. Bunches of folks are not charging enough. I have a client right now who... When we figured out what she was allowing someone else, she's a writer, and she gets hired to do writing workshops. But other people hire her and tell her, well, we only have, you know, this amount of money. When we broke it down, it turned out what well, the people that were in her workshop, she was basically getting paid $6 per person. Wow. <laughs> Six. No. Six. Yeah. yeah. She, and she didn't even think of it that way. She didn't even think of it that way. So I said to her... How would it feel for you to be able to put off, first of all, to be able to put on your own workshop and charge $40? Just this, just $40. That's a, and, and you got the same amount of people. That's five times what you're going to, you know, <laughs> what you just got for this other thing. Just having people reframe. But see, that takes a mindset shift mm. because what that means is now you have to tell that person, I'm sorry, I can't take that that workshop and, and people, and you also have to be at a point where you can't let people dictate what your creative practice is going to be. And we started that conversation talking about that because she was saying that they were the, the thing that I like to say, they were like messing with her mind with this. You're not really published that much. So we can't, <laughs> first of all, she released a CD of her writings. Okay. A CD of hers. She's a spoken word also. You're published. Okay, boom. Yes. As far as I'm concerned. And then I also asked her, how long have you been doing this? And she said 13 years. That doesn't sound to me like a novice. So I said, so again, you're allowing people to define your practice. And we people don't, unless you let them, they don't get the opportunity to do that. You have to decide how you want to present. So we're working on things like that. Hmm. That's been... That's been a lot of the, the things that we're talking about. As a matter of fact, some of these things are coming up a lot that my sister and I are going to be doing a workshop to help creative professionals. We're calling it a creative reset. So we're going to be addressing some of these things so that people can come and they can sit down. And one of the um, exercises I have people do, and it's something that I, I got from the coach that I work with, is to, to write about their ideal life. And write about it not as if it's happening. Because mm -hmm. I always usually have to work on that with my clients because they usually write it like this. I hope to have this, and I would really like to do this. And that's not how we want to do it. It's I am this, I have this, these are the things that are happening, which is a much more empowering way to speak. And you, it, the other way, you sound like you're apologizing, or you're not sure, or you're shirking, that kind of thing. And that's fine. That's fine. It was, I had never written like that before. It was a great exercise for me. And so we do a, 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 you know, a lot of that kind of thing. So we're going to be covering um, in this workshop, and we haven't really worked all everything out, but we're, those kinds of things we're going to talk about is some mindset work. How do you price your services? How do you market your services? 
and just how do you organize what you want to do? Like how, what's a good way? And, and again, we're doing it like high level because everybody works differently, but I, we want people to walk away with just a blueprint that they can adapt however they want as they're heading into the next year. So we're looking forward to doing that. That's going to be our first virtual workshop. We're really excited about that. So what is the other new project that you're working on right now? I'm very much into working intergenerationally. I, you know, I mentioned collaboration and all of that. I'm very intrigued by what young people are doing, especially millennials and Generation Z. I'm a young baby boomer. I'm at the end of the baby boomers years. But we, we're doing what we're calling it. At least right now we're calling it an EP. We're not doing a full CD. And the idea is that I handpicked three young people who are out here doing the, the, that thing in the, with the music. They're very successful in what they're doing. And I wanted them to challenge them. And so I'm bringing them on. They're going to pro- produce three songs for us. And then we're going to do three songs. We might end up doing four. That's what I'm thinking. Is this might end up being a, like a full project. But anyway, the, I, what I said to them is that I wanted them to write based on their experience as a woman. Although one of the persons that I chose was Brendan Davis. Brendan is a phenomenal jazz pianist prodigy. I've known him for many years. He has a wonderful spirit. And even though he's not a woman, he was raised by a single mom. And there's a lot of women in his, in his life. And so I asked him, to write based on someone that he admires that's a woman or whatever. I mean, we're we're always centering back on that woman experience. So he's going to be on the project. Alex Way um, is a former student of mine. She's a singer, songwriter, violinist, fabulous. She was in my Nina Strings group. She's amazing. And she's written some really wonderful music in terms of not just, as I mentioned before, it's important that they're, social, their social justice radar is on. Like they're paying attention to what's going on and they're making statements about what's going on and all of that. And Brendan is definitely that way. Um, Alex is definitely that way. She's written songs specifically about the black experience and the things that we've been going through. So I'm having her write a piece. And then we have a harpist, Aya Simone. Aya is awesome. She also won the Kresge with me. She, she, Alex and I are all 2018 Kresge fellows. And she's very well known. She's absolutely beautiful and socially conscious. She's done a wonderful, she's actually working on a series. I don't know if it's, it's a film or a series called the Film Queen Chronicles, where she's showcasing beautiful black trans women, of which she is one herself. And so she's like the main character. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And she's actually international. She has a wonderful community within locally, nationally, and internationally. And so we're bringing these three on. What we're doing is a couple of things. One, we're giving them a writer and producer credit, and I am paying them. So they're they're making, we're not just asking them to do this. And also, they get mentors, mentoring from us. It's because we're talking them through their pieces. We're getting ready actually tomorrow to go in and, and record Brendan's piece. It's already done. It's fabulous. Alex has given us her piece. Um, I is still working on hers. But, you know, it's an opportunity for them to get mentoring from us and some of that music industry experience and, and, and things like that. So I'm really excited about that. And the project is called Intergenerational. I just thought that would be a great way to just call it. We did do a crowdfunding for it. 
So that's good. A lot of this won't be out of my pocket like the other <laughs> projects have been, but which is fine. But but yeah, well, I'm really excited and looking forward to that. I'm hoping to release it. We'll see how things go with COVID. We can go into the studio because you can be socially distant and all that stuff. But I'm hoping to release it sometime next year. But intergenerational, that's our new project. Fantastic. Love to hear about that. Where can people go to find out about you? What, what mm-hmm. Online, on social media, where should they look for you? Okay, so several places. So you can start with our, our business website, which is ammayassociates.com. So ammayassociates.com. And that has all the information about our coaching and consulting services. I also have my own website, which is michellemay.net. M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-A-Y.net, which actually branches off into the other ones. And then my group, Music Noir, is musicnoir.com. So that's M-U-S-I-Q-U-E-N-O-I-R-E.com. So that's where they can find me. And then all my social connections are on there, too. I'm mainly on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a private Facebook group for creative professionals. And it's called Creative Professionals Thriving in Abundance and Authenticity. And you can, if you're a creative professional and you're looking for a supportive community um, of like-minded folks, you can join us there. There's three questions you have to answer in order to get approved to go in, but we would love to have you. And yeah, that's where they can find me. Thank you so very much, Michelle, for coming on the show and sharing all this enthusiasm and history of Detroit and the history of your creation of yourself uh, <laughs> as a striving and, and celebrated and exuberant <laughs> example of what you can be if you put your mind to it. Yes, so thank you. Thank you for being on Tia Time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website, tiaviolin.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate your comments and will mind them to bring you more amazing episodes. I would like to thank this inaugural season sponsors, the folks at Jazz Lines of Bend, Michigan, or JAM. Michigan Art Share, a program of Michigan State University Extension, is a partner in supporting the Tia Time podcast and Sham Bones Music. Without their support, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much. If you would also like to contribute to the show, you can find us on Patreon.com. If you want to continue the conversation about topics discussed in the show or start new ones with like-minded people, join us at the Tia Time Lounge on Facebook. Thank you for listening. See you next week at Tia Time. Thank you for joining us this week on Tia Time with Artist. Make sure to visit our website at tiaviolin.com where you can subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. Please leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts to expand the reach of the show. We really appreciate that help. And we'd also like to say thank you so very much to our sponsors, Michigan ArtShare, a program of Michigan State University Extension, and Cold Plunge Records. And also all of our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. We'll see you next week at Tea Time.